HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Paul Vogie, CEO and co-founder with his wife, Maddie, of Aura Bora, the sparkling water made with herbs, fruit, and flowers. What began in 2019 as an experiment in their kitchen is now one of the fastest growing beverage brands in the country. Aura Bora can be found on their website and in over 2,000 retailers across the U.S., including Sprouts, Whole Foods, Thrive Market, Walmart, and many natural grocery stores. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. Thrilled to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's um, you. I've been spending a lot of time watching your Shark Tank episode, so Gosh, I feel so you, you had prepared. nothing else better to watch. I'm so sorry. Yeah, but it's you, just been on repeat, man. Because yeah. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> things got rough around here, and so yeah. I was like, "What is the thing I can just keep watching over and over?" No, I yeah. will say, you know, it's it. I like to do the research, and it is very helpful when there's video. I understand why YouTube has flourished. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Shark Tank was a lot of fun. And what's great is that if you Google Ouroboros Shark Tank, that one clip is mostly me mishearing Robert Hershey. Yes, so, I know, but you handled it so charmingly. Oh, you, you. you did. You were adorable <laughs> the, about it. The number of retailers that when we were like discussing promo plans probably four or five times someone's been like, and did yeah, you hear those numbers? Right? Yeah. 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 Or do you need us to repeat those? So yeah. it's been used against me a few times. I mean, and also I'm sure it, we'll talk about it later, but my guess is that it's also been pretty helpful. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Highly recommend. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's interesting um, because, you know, I, I'm trying to just kind of gather, so I'm not, repeating what people can read or, you know, see or, you know, listen to on other podcasts. So I tend to sort of like summarize 
my interpretation of the origin story so that we can kind of get to brass tacks and helpful hints. So my overarching summary of your life is (laughs) 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 in 2019. Yes, exactly. 2019, things are kind of like before, as we all think of it, it's October, you and Maddie, you had um, office jobs in Denver, you both noticed that, you know, a lot of people in your offices were drinking the sparkling water, but that there was no sort of, you know, what you call 3.0 craft options that, you know, um, the two of you grew up without soda. So you were the right founders for kind of coming up with something interesting and a little, as you guys call it, weird um, flavors that maybe weren't your run of the mill flavors in the category. Right. You got a home carbonator, you guys played around with it, and then basically used your savings to make a thousand cans of five different flavors. Is that right so far? That's exactly how it happened. (laughs) You went to a trade show in Boulder um, and fortunately met a buyer for Whole Foods. Yes, although one asterisk there, I've actually never met the buyer. Um, we, okay. we may attracted have, the interest. Yes. I'd say she never came to our booth. I don't know why it wasn't that huh. big of a trade show. <laughs> right. And there was a little bit of, I would say a white lie told the next day, such that I could get samples onto her desk. In Got it. Okay. Um, and thankfully for us, you've, you've been to trade shows, you know how chaotic they are. Yeah. They're they're Yes. Yeah. I have a crystal clear memory that we never met. She wasn't sure if we'd met or not because it's you know crazy to go to those shows as a Whole Foods uh-huh. buyer. You're getting bombarded by everybody. So right. she actually thought we had met, which I haven't corrected her on. Yeah, you I'm did not disabuse her of that notion. Exactly. Is basically, yes. right. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things, I'm going to just go back to the Shark Tank thing every once in a while, but one of the things I liked that Mark Cuban said was like, you're a nudge, <laughs> yeah, <for sure. laughs> which, yeah. which is exactly what you need to be. I mean, we're just like hawking our wares basically totally. and getting them in front of whoever we can and making sure that they look good and they're moving and all that. So I, I respect the, um, the getting on her desk situation. And Thank you. Then, no, I would say not ninety percent of my personality is being a nudge, so it only made sense that I would do this in a corporate. How fun for Maddie that must yeah, be. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so um, then you know, did you have any distribution prior to the lockdowns, like between sort of the end of nineteen and when you know we all sort of think is like COVID starting, even though it you know, technically started before, but like that March or April, were you on shelves? We were. So I'll I'll say um, we were on shelves, but no, no big strategic shelves. I was driving around. At that point, we lived in the Bay Area. Uh, We moved for Maddie's job, which obviously I was making no money selling sparkling water. So we moved to where the money was. Um, And ultimately, the Bay Area ended up being a much better place to launch a beverage business in general. Um, But imagine me just driving around in a Subaru to Berkeley and Palo Alto and San Francisco. Um, I bet on the, the day that we all consider when COVID started, we were probably on 150 shelves, if I had to guess. Right. And so, I mean... Here's an interesting question, like, because I remember that very well. And I, and, and we were, you know, a cooking school and we had, I think half of a page 
around eight pages into our website that said like, oh, also we have sauce. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we had to become like a D to C company, you know, kind of overnight. Did you, I mean, beverage isn't, well, I guess Olipop kind of launched D to C ish. Like, was that part of the plan? Like, were you thinking that that was going to be an opportunity for you? Were you techie in that no. way? Or were so you thinking I, like retail, 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 and then all of a sudden had to pivot? I, I was thinking retail, retail, retail. And, and I'll say like it had come up before, you know, probably the most obvious example is like, I, I grew up in a, a small town outside New York City where we had a milkman. So like, it's mm-hmm. not a totally unusual thing to get beverages direct to consumer. Mm-hmm. It's certainly unusual, but not that unusual. Um, but I was the biggest detractor of it. So before COVID, like folks were asking, oh, you know, are you going to put any ad dollars into your website and try to get people to buy stuff? And I was like, heck no. Like, if this is a 10 pound box. I'm shipping 2000 miles. Yep. Like, where is the money here? That makes no right. sense. Um, and then as a result of COVID, like there was a quick day where we put an integration such that you could shop on our page. And I felt like as a result of everyone sitting at home, yeah, our, our organic social media was getting more engagement, which led to more views to our website, which led to more purchases. Plus, those first few purchases on our site, I, I'm from a very large family. So they were like siblings, cousins, aunts, <laughs> uncles, and yeah. then my siblings, cousins, aunts, and uncles, friends. And all of a sudden, we're talking about a couple hundred people that I'm blood related to or one step away. <laughs> and then put everyone inside, and all of a sudden, we're getting a little more reach. So I remember... I was selling to those stores and then on Friday afternoon, I would drive to the post office and ship five boxes, then seven yeah. boxes, then 10 boxes. And yeah. thankfully I live in San Francisco where there's one post office that's open till 9 PM because inevitably <laughs> other things would happen in the day and it would just always get pushed down the road. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I was proven wrong. I don't know at this point, thousands of times over that direct to consumer was meaningful. Yes. I mean, we're going to get back to how meaningful it is yeah. now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, I had a similar thing where we, Courtney, you know, who's my brand director, who's, you know, been working at Haven's Kitchen since 2018, literally. And she actually made the website. We had to take down the entire old website because it was for registering for classes and what's the cafe menu that day and the event space. And she just made a website. I mean, made one and yeah, gosh crazy. Um, it's funny to but, think back on because it, it wasn't that long ago, but it, it no. just feels like a totally different world. Yeah. yeah. And we basically turned the cooking school into a distribution center with, you know, we had the, our boxes and our ice packs and, you know, my son and I would basically, you know, pack up, I don't know, 30, 40 packages every other day and get in the car and take them to FedEx and, well, you know, triple mask and, it's kind of wild. Um, totally wild. Yes. Yeah. Looking Agreed. back. And so, okay. So everything happens. The world shuts down. Maddie is still working her day job. You are still full time trying to make this thing work. Yep. And what, what gave you the, do you remember there being like a, Oh, okay. I think this is going to work moment or 100%. What was, yeah. What was yeah, the 100%. And, and I'll say, actually, I probably have the biggest empathy for folks that never get this moment because yeah. you, either you're like too anxious to see it or it just never is clear crystal. I remember I was at a gas tank in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. This is March of 2020. 
So about four months after that trade show, I dropped off samples in the Whole Foods buyer's desk. And at that point, all the sales we had were just stores that I had sold to. And, and I was having a hard time realizing like, how does this scale? Like, I can't right. keep doing this. This, In fact, there are some stores that order so infrequently, the gas I burn on the way down to Palo Alto <laughs> negates any sort of contribution margin here. Like, mm -hmm. how is this possible? Um, and I got this amazing email out of the blue from that buyer I just referenced saying, mm -hmm. hey, see attached your authorization for the Rockies wow. regional market. And, and I grew up in a family that shopped at Whole Foods for the most yeah. part. Um, uh, my mom would actually drive several towns over such that we could go to Whole Foods because she was that passionate about natural foods. And I just remember thinking like, oh my gosh, I, this, this far, I might've been deluding myself that this is right. a product that the world needs. Like there are a lot of sparkling waters. Do we really need a lavender cucumber flavored one? Like <laughs> just drink lemon lime and stop complaining. Um, <laughs> and I think I was telling myself a story that no, this deserves to exist. This deserves to exist. But I don't really trust myself because, uh, like I said, I'm from a large Greek family. Well, also, like, Northeast. if you didn't think it deserved to exist, you would base I mean, it's existential. Right, exactly. Us, right? Yes. And yeah. I think there are days where that creeps in in the yeah, existential case. And you're like, yeah. man, my resume, I could make more money elsewhere. Or maybe I should just play easy. And that was the first time that someone who I implicitly trusted because they're a forager at Whole Foods. Yeah. All they do all day is evaluate new, right. interesting products. And it was like, oh my gosh, I've convinced her. I just need to do this a thousand more times. And that's how this scales. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, it is it is really important that outside validation. I think what ends up happening is that you, I mean, not to be depressing about it, but yeah. you know, it's like, it's it, for me, it's like, how's the validation this week? How are the, oh how gosh, is it, totally. you know, this hour? Yeah. Yeah. Like what, what's going on, you know, with this store and that buyer and that investor and that consumer and that channel. And, you know, how, how do you, I mean, that's a kind of a segue in a way, but you're a really positive guy. Thank you. <laughs> at least, at least externally, you might be yeah. like a, I bleed on the inside person. Um, but how you're in probably one of the more competitive categories yeah. I would say beverage is intense. I learned really early on, you know, I think I've just met a lot of beverage founders and it's sharper elbows than, yeah. than my category. And it's, um, it's just hyper competitive, I think. And, totally. and then also sparkling water while to your point, you know, a lot of people drink it. A lot of people are looking for alternatives to soda. A lot of people know that they need to hydrate better. All of those reasons are very compelling. And also, you know, it's a very big and also rather crowded um, category. So right. what do you, what, how do you grab the wins? What are the wins that make you feel good? And when you get kind of like the uh, feeling like, does this have a right to exist? Would I be better off doing something else? Which I think those of us who are in touch at all with ourselves have to admit that we have that feeling every once in a while. How do you talk to yourself in those moments? So I'd say on, on the kind of existential question of like, where do I go? Um, I try, I try to remind it's myself like, like a musical. Don't you feel like yeah. <laughs> CPG the musical? And there's a moment where the person's like, "Where do I go? Like, what do I do? You know, does my product belong? You know that? I think it would be great. 
I'm gonna. Write I totally it. agree, and I love musicals. No, I would say yeah. like I I can often lose sight of. Yes, at its very core, and to most consumers, like we just make sparkling water products, and they end up on the shelf. Now, unfortunately, I wish that that was ninety percent of the business. It's actually right. like two percent of the business, and ninety eight percent of it is having the right humans on board, getting the right pricing, battling with cogs, copat, like whatever the struggle is that particular day of the week. Um, can often rule the Free. roost. Yep. Yeah. And I almost always go back uh, to our reviews and just see like, let me just go back and orient myself of when I talk to buyers, they're really excited about the product on shelf. They think it's turning well. When I talk to consumers, they are every single day, they're tagging us in photos at their friend's wedding or a, a baby shower mm -hmm. or just a casual Saturday at the beach. Like the actual core of the business is we've made a product that someone really, really enjoys. Yeah, no bad detail or investor that's asking a troublesome question or employee that we're, we're having a disagreement could possibly overshadow the fact that this product did not exist in the world. Nobody knew anything about it. And now there are people that buy it every two weeks. So yeah. I, I go- Who don't know you, who aren't in your family. Yes. Who, <laughs> besides the fact that I think 80% of the human population is in my family, they're in that 20% <laughs> that are not in my family. Yes. I know. It really, you know, this thing happened- one, two, three, back to me for a second. Sorry. But like on last <laughs> last Thursday or Friday, the pioneer woman, do you know the pioneer woman? No, tell me that. She's like, she, she's this like food network phenom. She's been on okay. for like 25 seasons. She teaches America how to cook. And she, someone, I got my first. Oh, I saw you post this. And she covered yeah. up the label, which I was so pissed about. Why no, did she actually, have the label out? So this is what's so interesting. I don't know how to verbalize why I actually love that she covered up the label. Okay. And it sounds a little bit weird, but so this, this woman on the food network who has like a very huge following umpteen cookbooks, lots of shows, people like adore her right. had an episode on her show about sauce and made these chimichurri shrimp and used our pouch to toss these shrimp, but as you said, masking taped over the label, which is what you do when you use Hellman's or Heinz, yeah. right? Like, or Gouldens or whatever it is. Like, it made me mm. feel like it, this wasn't about the brand. This wasn't about us knowing someone, whatever, because we had no idea. And also, clearly, it was not placed in any way because we got zero credit, as you mentioned. <laughs> like, not yeah. only did they not mention our brand, but they covered it up. But anyone who knows us knows those pouches, which was yeah. number one. So super exciting for me because I'm like, okay, wait a second. There's a pouch. It has chimichurri in it. That couldn't That's be my anyone pouch. else's. That's ours. Yeah. So that was exciting. But also I kind of felt like it was like watching my child out in, in, in the swimming pool and I wasn't in the pool with it or her. Yeah. Or her. I, <laughs> and also it didn't have water wings on. It was right. just like out there. And someone right. at the food network was like, we're going to use this chimichurri. It, you know what I mean? Like it felt like. Totally. It felt like big time in a way. It's and, by far the most gratifying piece of this experience. And I would yeah. say every time I talk to anyone that's starting a brand, I think very quickly you can just become, oh, like I'm just the head financier or the head recruitment officer, which yeah. those are really important things. Of course, your team and your finances are arguably the two most important things about your business. In some instances, even more important than the product because you need them yep. for the product to exist. Mm -hmm. 
But whatever you need to do to spend at least an hour a day talking to customers or seeing what customers say, whether that's customer service tickets or email exchanges or social media, wherever customers live, it's like the only reason you want to wake up the next morning. The other seven and a half hours of finance and HR things like won't wake you up, but that one will. So I totally agree with you of every time I see a can in the wild, or I just had this experience on Saturday, I was at a friend's birthday party who this was like not an Ourobora oriented birthday party at all. I ran into someone I did not, I did not know who was like, Hey, what do you do? And I said, Oh, I, I, uh, I actually sell beverages for a living. And she's like, Oh, what beverages? And I was like, Oh, it's it's a small sparkling water company called Ourobora. And I just like watched her eyes light up and she was like, Oh my gosh, I had your ginger Meyer lemon. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Frankly, hasn't happened to me more than a dozen times. Right. I didn't know it was yours. I didn't know it was you. This is you. This is in my, I saw this in my cousin's fridge. Yeah. It's the best. Um, Okay. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk, you talked about team, you talked about finance, you talked about sales. We're going to talk about all of it. We'll be right back. Love it. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. I'm back with Paul Vogie from Ora Bora. Okay, so before I get into my questions, I want to go back to a couple of things you said before the break. So an hour a day engaged with people who are actually engaging with your brand. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, would you say you really do that? Like, is that is that sort of like, I wake up and I work out or I, you know, meditate or I, like, is this something that you actually try to hold yourself to? Because I really like the idea. I don't know if I'm going to do an hour, but I do like the idea of just half an hour of my day, either looking at reviews or talking to people or on some one of our social channels, just just hearing from people. Because I used to be in the stores a lot more. I think when it was local, I did more demos than I care to admit, but I haven't (laughs) since, since COVID. So tell me about that a little bit. Like, do you really do that? Yeah. So I'll say it's almost never an hour during the workday. I'd say like 20 to 30 minutes of it is, you know, our awesome head of customer experience is like, hey, we say that we're kosher certified. This happened this morning. We say that we're kosher certified. Someone's complaining. They don't see the kosher symbol. And I just jumped in and was like, oh, uh, send me the message. And the message was kind of rudely written, to be honest. But um, <laughs> it was a customer <laughs> saying... I'm really disappointed I got these cancers, no kosher symbol. And I just wrote a quick sentence response of, hey, it takes a while to move old cans through the market. The truth is we are kosher certified, whether the can says it or not. Um, and soon all the cans will say it. It's just, you have to sell the old cans. I can't throw them right. away. Um, right. And that's like a very small issue, but it reminded me just this morning of, oh my gosh, there's a huge base of people that 
whether something is kosher certified or not, and whether the stamp is on the side, will be the difference between them writing an angry email or them being yep. delighted in drinking the yep. product. So yep. that's a very small example of, great, on the front lines, what's happening. And then probably between 12.30 and 1 in the morning, as I'm falling asleep tonight, <laughs> I'll go jump into the DMs oh, on man. our social media Paul. page and Paul. see what are they saying. Whether that's healthy or not, we can debate. Oh my gosh. But I, I find it gratifying. Okay. I mean, that's amazing. I... I have, I now won't even look at my phone after. <laughs> no, really. Like I can't, I don't, you know what? I don't look at it first thing when I wake up anymore. Good. Um, and I don't look at it before I go to bed anymore. And, but so we can talk about that, but okay. yeah, I mean, I think I, I do love it because going back to the reason why you sort of went down that road is, you know, our jobs as, you know, founders or CEOs or leading these teams can feel basically like I'm, you know, like I always go back to um, uh, Fred Wilson, who said, team, vision, cash, hmm. team, vision, cash, right? So those do end up being our primary jobs. Right. Um, but because without them, as you said, there would be no team or brand or product, but it can, you know, it, it is, it's a slog. Right. I mean, the vision is, the vision isn't, the vision isn't sloggy. The vision is the fun part, the team and the finance, obviously that stuff, especially for me, I think you have a finance background. Um, I, but I, I do lightly. Yeah. Not, not in the <laughs> consumer goods way. Um, not enough to feel good about it. Yeah. But you knew what contribution margin was like that rolled trippingly off your tongue. So I, I feel like, <laughs> I yeah, I did not until like, two months ago. And I'm sorry to my investors who are <laughs> listening to this. I knew I was like, I was told that your product margin should be somewhere in the sixties. Your gross margin should be somewhere in the, you know, high thirties, low forties. If you're in that area, you know, we're happy. Right. And so I just went with that. But, um, so what were you doing before in, in light finance? <laughs> yeah, I, I was I was working at a small investment firm. It was called Saturn Five. Uh, the reason I say light is because it was a holding company where, for the most part, the company was buying kind of unsexy cash flowing businesses. Mm, those are great, though. I know it's it's the it's the businesses that run the country but don't make yep. it to the Wall Street Journal. So, yep. like we were buying corporate cleaning businesses and concrete businesses and a couple of construction firms, and it was really helpful uh, in order to one, read a profit and loss statement and understand how it affects your balance sheet and your cash flow statement. But, you know, I, I wasn't kind of hardcore modeling or right. I, I didn't become an Excel junkie, but it was really helpful to be like, okay, what do I love about these businesses? And what about these businesses drives me a little bit crazy? Um, I'll say like with the corporate cleaning business, there's nothing <laughs> you can do in a corporate cleaning business that makes you better than the next corporate cleaning business besides corporate cleaning. There's right. no logo. There, there's like, it's just rates. <laughs> You're not building pay. a brand and, yes, you know, no community. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas, yes, what I maybe the, on the opposite, the thing I love the most about CPG or Ouroboros specifically is, hey, we are building a differentiated brand that shouldn't feel like anything else people are consuming. Um, well, let's talk about that a uh, little bit because, okay, so if that's, if that's like the, the priority, right, or the goal, right? Yep. So how do you make a product that is basically water with yep. <laughs> flavor in it. No, but I mean, it's really a great, it's a great, you know, case study. How do you make it feel different and how do you create, you know, 
I had um, Ellie Lanning on here a couple weeks yeah. ago. She worked at Kind Forever. And I just keep going back to what she said because we were talking about a recession or just even like a, an economic downturn and, you know, how brands can protect themselves. And she said, basically what happens is consumers in those times, they just don't try new things quite as easily. Right. So you really want to spend more on, you know, occasions and uses for your current consumer, right? Rather than trying to spend to acquire new ones, because they're just going to be more expensive. So right. someone who drinks an Ourobora once a day, see if they can drink it twice a day or once a week, see if it can be twice a week. And that's, you know, where you're going to find the bang for your buck. But that presupposes a group of people who are already quite smitten with you. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that you're really building right now. That's the difference as you're pointing out between you and like the, you know, corporate cleaning service. Sure. Um, and it is flavor to some extent. Yes. Your flavors are interesting and, you know, kind of crafty and a little quote unquote weird. Right. But it's got to go beyond just flavor because at the end of the day, is that what keeps them? right? Or, or is there something bigger? And if so, how, how do you create that? And what is that thing? And I have a feeling Maddie is a big part of that. She is a huge part of it. Yeah. So I was, I actually usually answer any question like this. So like, well, first and foremost, I married well, um, right. <laughs> which not, you know, a disturbing number of people don't do that. So I highly recommend marrying well, or, or yeah. um, I'll say a different way, surround yourself with people that are like more talented than you. Um, yes. So Maddie is a uh, extreme creative, a very, very talented brand person. And prior to Ourobora has been in brand and graphic design and copywriting for her whole career, which we're not that old. So her whole career is not like 20 years. It's just a few years. But um, even if you met her at a party, you'd immediately think, wow, that was, she, she reminds me of an artist and less so of a business. Um, which is great because if, uh, there's anything businesses try to do and usually fail at is like be creative. Yeah. Um, I, I don't remember the last time you went to a business and thought, man, the creative in here was so inspired. For the most part, you right. probably thought, oh, great, that delivered on time or the price was good or the product was not. Um, so I will say for us, yes, our first and foremost biggest differentiator is flavor, i.e. most of the sparkling water companies are using the same five or six flavors. Here's a lime, here's a lemon, here's a grapefruit, get the heck out of here. Um, right. And we thought, okay, we drink this product all the time. I drink 10 to 12 cans a day. I have for many, many years. Um, and for me, it felt like I'm, I'm bored of Pompelmousse mm -hmm. LaCroix. So from the get-go, as you perfectly eloquently summarized, the idea was, can we make whimsical, delightful, peculiar sparkling water products that for the sparkling water aficionados or addicts, you can choose the word of your, that you're most comfortable with. Uh, right. Those of us that are drinking 10 to 12 cans of this a day, will find this nice little break from the monotony of boring flavors. Um, mm -hmm. That's often not enough. You know, there, there's uh, plenty. Right. Is that base enough, right? Yeah, yeah, is that enough? Like, okay, great, you got different flavors, but for the most part, it's 99% sparkling water. So we're just mm -hmm. drinking a very simple product. Our hope was, okay, if we're gonna have these delightful but peculiar flavors, can we have a brand that is also delightful and peculiar? So right. can we use different ingredients? Can we have different flavors? That's great. We don't use citric acid. We use herbal extracts to flavor the drinks. Those are unusual ingredient things. Flavors, that's an un you have unusual flavors compared to the rest. But I think icing on the cake kind of makes it seem like it's not very substantial. I would say 
a huge piece of the brand is can we communicate those points of differentiation in a way consumers are not used to being talked to? So first and foremost, yes. that's like what's on the can. What does the packaging look like? And Maddie has done a great job of not just having great packaging because a lot of brands have great packaging, but can we actually have a distinctive brand voice and speak to the customer? They're not used to sparkling water companies. Yeah, I love that. So a long, long way of saying all three of those things combined ends up being how we differentiate from the market. But you're right that the one we feel the most safe about, i.e., LaCroix tomorrow could come out with a lavender cucumber flavor. They could start right. using usable extracts. They could stop using citric acid. They could use a sleek can. But I think they have a very, very hard time taking Maddie's personality and putting it yep. through products in the marketplace. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's that's when they talk about, you know, founder product fit. You know, I was, you know, I think I've said this a lot, but it bears repeating. Like, there's no product I could be a an, a better founder for. Yeah. Right. And there's no founder that would be a better fit for this particular product. Right? right. Like, and a lot of times I think what separates, you know, you know, when the wind starts to blow and the storm comes and like, I always talk about, you know, the house of brick versus the house of straw, a lot of what keeps the house standing is this fundamental connection between us and these companies like we didn't look for a white space we weren't riding on the success of another company and and we're like oh we can do that just like with a cooler box you know it's there's like a depth to it there that I think really does resonate with consumers and I think it resonates with customers I think my next question then becomes and I ask myself of this all the time (laughs) Can I just say I ask myself of this? <laughs> I'm. We won't edit that out, but sorry. Um, <laughs> but I do ask myself a lot, like, okay, that's step one. But then how do you get them again and again and again? And is this scalable? Like, are there enough people who love this and see the value in it and I'm making their life better? Are there enough people who will pay $6.99 or $5.99 for this? you know, at stores across the country, not just in places where they know what tahini is or chimichurri, is it scalable? And how long is it going to take me to get there? And what needs to happen in order for us to get there? And that's the thing I'm constantly playing with. And like, Mm -hmm. I think that's the thing that I'm constantly battling around, you know, and, and, and this works really, really well in Whole Foods and Sprouts. And is it going to work you know, in 2000 Kroger's, let's say, and then this product probably isn't a Walmart product, but at some point, is there a Walmart product? And so I guess for you, you have some of those stores already, you have the Whole Foods consumer, but it seems like you also have Thrive and it looked like Walmart. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. So Although I, me, I, would, I would never yeah. say that in front of uh, natu- a lot of natural store buyers. We won't tell Sprouts. Um, we yeah, won't. Okay. They don't listen. I don't think. And if they <laughs> do, then I'll I'll make something up. But I'm willing yeah, to take I mean, that risk. And I mean, are you seeing massive discrepancies in velocities at the natural kind of more progressive grocers than the bigger mass ones, or not so much? 
So for, first of all, a, a moment of silence for everyone that doesn't know what tahini and chimichurri is because I, I'm sad <laughs> for their life. Uh, we're going to get them. We'll, we'll get yeah, it you I mean, listen, the pioneer woman is talking about chimichurri. We're like, exactly. there's an inflection point. We're here. Yes. Yeah. No, you, you, uh, I, I want you to put a feather in your cap of being able to say, hey, I introduced X million of people to chimichurri and their life is fundamentally better as a result. Um, and I say that because... I often found both investors and operators like talking about the country in the way that you just did. And it's totally true of like, hey, there are coastal folks that are shopping mm -hmm. at Sprouts and Whole Foods and on the West Coast, Erewhon and Lazy Acres and Bristol Farms and on the East Coast, Stu Leonard's and Zabar's, et cetera, of the, these consumers are different from, say, your Kroger Albertsons consumer. And yep. we can say that a million different ways, not just household income. Where do they live? Is it more suburban? Is it more rural? What do they mm -hmm. shop? What's their average cart size? How much fresh produce do they buy? Do they buy frozen yep. fruit or fresh fruit? Like there's a yep. hundred <laughs> ways of slicing the customer that way. And yes. I think there is a worry if you're you and me of, oh my gosh, are we going to lose some of that magic because we can move a case per store per skew per week at Whole Foods. And now we're moving a third of the case. I'm trying to think of it the, uh, the other way. Um, mm. Every conventional store we've gone into, like I'll, I'll say this is kind of unique to sparkling water or I'll say unique to soda alternatives. Like there is 100% a health crisis in the United States, in a lot of the world, but in the United States probably most potently, particularly if you look at, at it relative to so income. income. right? Yes, relative to income, you can't even believe what's going on. It feels like- yeah. The, the more pills and more dollars we get, the, the worse off we are. It doesn't yeah. even make any sense. So for us, I kind of thought, okay, I think we have a low priced enough product that although more people probably know what Rose tastes like at an average Whole Foods than an average Kroger, we, we have found that at an average conventional store, there are still enough of those consumers right. to take a chance on us and then eventually get us in their fridge and eventually introduce us to friends. So for us, yeah. it's felt like a philosophical thing of hey, of course, you need to build your business in natural to start and then expand elsewhere. Yep. But I feel pretty passionate of if every natural or better for you brand avoids this, then we're just yeah. making the already educated consumers are getting an amazing tahini, but the folks yep. that don't know about tahini aren't getting introduced. So I yeah. kind of feel like, hey, I know that the major brands, i.e. LaCroix, Waterloo, Polar, whoever it is, like they're not going to take the time and have a lavender cucumber sparkling water for Kroger. So I get that distinct privilege mm -hmm. um, yeah. is kind of how I felt about it. No, I think that's awesome. And I will say, you know, someone told me once, like if you're selling eight units of Chimmy at Whole Foods, you're going to sell four at Kroger and you're going to sell right. two at Target. Yep. And we have not found that to be the case at all. Okay. Um, it, it hasn't turned out. I mean, it, I think Target is like its own weird, wonderful little ecosystem. Um, Definitely. And people are going there for discovery in a really beautiful way. I don't know. They just, they've done something really cool, I think. Um, well, you're also, hard to also, work you, with sometimes, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> you're also but, speaking to, this is a separate issue, but it's something I come up against. Like we both have talked, we've both now quoted people who have given us advice and one problem I have is that the grocery business moves so fast and it moves so yep. fast because it's the only place almost every American is going to once a week. Yeah. Like yep. the truth is I've always wondered like that's where we should be voting. That's a side note, but like when elections yeah. happen, it should be one week long in the supermarket. Like yeah. you put it right there at the front. Cause we're all going to go into this store once a week yep. separately. The problem is that a lot of that advice is now 10 years outdated. Yeah. And I'm like, might as well just be telling me how good a car is relative to a horse. Yeah. Like that advice yeah. is now dead. 
we've moved on from that. So yeah. I'm constantly finding that people that give me advice, I, I am kind of mean about this, but I'll be like, hey, in what year are you referring to when you say that? And right. If it doesn't end in a teen from the 20s, I'm not interested. <laughs> but even if it was pre-COVID, right? I mean, yeah, a lot of these sure. conventional stores have figured out e-com and yep. in a way that Whole Foods didn't, right? Totally. Like for quite some time. So it, I agree. I think the same thing is true with marketing. Like I get advice all the time about, you know, hiring someone who's been in marketing forever because da 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 and, you know, that they know how to measure the ROI. And I'm like, I mean, TikTok wasn't even a thing. <laughs> like, how would they know? How, right. I think I think every channel, you know, what it's used for, how you use it, you know, what it speaks to, all of that, you know, how do you measure the return on something? First of all, I think a lot of times you just don't, but people like build theses around them and make the numbers fit. Yes, but, often. You know, I think also you're right about everything moves so quickly in this industry and so quickly now and if you really want to understand what's going on to your point in the world is like check in with the grocery store shopper. And that's why I think what going back to you, one of the things that I like so much about your story is that, you know, whether Mark Cuban called you a nudge or not, you were in <laughs> those stores. No, you're babysitting. And the thing right. that I think people miss in this is that we're told to focus on growth so much that we, and everyone says, no, it's, you know, it's velocity, but at the end of the day, it's really about sales. Right. And what happens is, is we kind of, we do all this babysitting at the beginning, you know, we're watching the stores and we're talking to the buyers and we're talking to the, you know, merchandisers in the stores. And we're talking to people that are like, you know, looking at the brand and not sure. And we're like, Hey, hi, that's my, you know, can I help you with that? You know, like we're doing right. all of that at the beginning and then something happens where it gets beyond us or bigger. And we figure maybe there are other people to do that, but you seem like you are still right in there. And I mean, we went back to merchandising. We have people in almost every store now filling our voids and making them look good on shelf and, making sure that the tags are right and that they're in, you know, code. And we didn't for a little while and, and we're back to it because we just, we see what happens when you're not guarding the kids in the pool. Totally. Yeah. It's, it, isn't it amazing just how much it takes to sell a product at retail? Like everyone, yeah. I, I love, cause I often hear, I'll just make fun of venture capitalists. They can take it of, yeah. I often <laughs> hear venture capitalists say, well, you just got to, you know, scale back to retail. And right. I, I am usually a more respectful person, so I don't say anything. But if I could be disrespectful just for a second, I'd say, this you is know your that? opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that was a one sentence thing you said that the, the largest organizations in the world have a difficult time doing. So yeah. you're telling me to do it in one sentence. It seems a little absurd. Um, yeah. I.e., I, this is a silly story, but we, we are in a very small selection of Walmarts in Northern California. Um, Partly because the the phone number in the back of every can is my cell phone number. So I got a cell phone call from someone saying, hey, this is the buyer of beverages at Walmart, which obviously I said, that's just not true. Who is this really? Right, and, right, right. <laughs> and she's like, no, seriously, I, I buy beverages at Walmart. We'd love to put you in a small test if, you don't, if you're interested. And I was like, uh, you know what? I think conventional wisdom would say I, I should say no to this. But at right. the same time, I know that 
The number one complaint venture capitalists will have with this brand is that our flavors are too niche and they won't yeah. scale to mass. Yeah, so if I can yeah. get a very small test of stores in Walmart to prove, hey, look at this data, then I can kind of shut up those concerns. Long okay, way saying, I have to pause you. I have yeah, to pause you because please. I really like this and I love this for listeners. And this is something that I've talked about with other founders. You did not go into Walmart to go into Walmart. You went into Walmart to do a test, not oh. on anything other than, but something that you wanted to test, right? Yes, you, you needed to disprove something. That's a really, really amazing way to, I think, build all of it out. Right. Every single channel, whether it's marketing or sales, is going to almost be for like a different purpose. Right. And as long as you're the dog, right? And you're right, not right. the tail. <laughs> now, I mean, I say to my team all the time, like, we're the dog. We've right. got to be the dog. Like, because we get tossed around by so much stuff, right? But if we make the decision, all right, I'm going to do this because people think we're niche, people think right. we're too artisan. Okay, I'm going to disprove that. And I'm going to do a really small, really tight little test. Yep. I mean, that's so smart. That's really well, great. Thank you. No, I, I, and I, I can't take credit. Maybe my favorite investor is a guy named Clayton Christopher. And that was his mm -hmm. idea. He said, Hey, I've invested in some premium beverage businesses that really failed at Target and Walmart, but we didn't know until the fifth year, how great right. would it be if we knew in the second year? Um, Long way of saying, I, I was in those Walmarts trying to pull product from the back of the store to the front of the store. Uh, right. And to your point about merchandising, feeling like, man, there's so much babysitting. How not scalable is this? And then I looked left and right, and I saw someone in a Mondelez t-shirt yeah. and someone in a Nestle shirt. And I realized, oh, long. this isn't unique to me. No. This is how every single food and beverage business works, is they know how difficult it is to get to yep. retail and to scale effectively. So I'm doing this today, but the truth is in the history of Ourobor for the next hundred years, someone will be doing this. Yep. It won't always be me, but that's yep. just how this works. Yeah. And I think it's really good to just keep it in mind and budget for it. You know, budget the time, budget the energy, you know, I think there was a minute where we were like, okay, you know, we can't be in stores now. So are we going to do demos? Are we going to have merchandisers at some point? Like everything's digital anyway. You know, there was this sort of like right. whiplash over, even though we're such a Luddite brand in a lot of ways, I think um, it, it goes back. And I, and I don't think that people give it enough, given, you know, what, what gets you the off shelf or, you know, for us being refrigerated, we don't have a lot of off shelves and secondary placements hard because you got to right. like get the butcher to basically agree to give you some space for your chimichurri, right. even though like they could sell more meat in that space and they don't get any of the money from that yep. space. Right. So it's hard. Um, but those relationships at the, at the store level between people who are in those stores and helping unpack and all the stuff that we do at the beginning, um, that's where it's at. And people might say that that's a little bit messed up and that it needs to be disrupted, but I don't see it getting, even if what, 22% of our purchases, you know, food and beverage purchases end up being online that includes Amazon and Instacart and right. Kroger.com. So right. it's happening. Yeah. Right? The, the, I mean, the truth is it's, it's just not, it's not changing anytime soon. And anyone that thinks that that is not a useful, like use of resources. Right. I, I just think you haven't seen the lift for when we do merchandising. Like I know. Yep. I was going to say they could go into um, corporate cleaning. 
So back to team for a second, because you were saying team and finance feels yeah. like the bulk of your day. Have have you, you have 13, is we that do. right? 13 okay. employees, yeah. Um, any, any tricks as you've grown that team pretty rapidly in the last, you know, two years from the two of you to 13 people, anything that anyone advised you or that you and Maddie have learned over the last couple of years that help you manage your team well, feel good about your leadership skills, you know, help people yes. develop their careers. What, what would you say are the sort of big things that you could share the love? I felt like the number, the, the biggest piece, and I'll, let me preface this by saying, I am a cynical person. So when I hear anyone talk about culture, yes, I know. When I hear anyone talk about culture, I always think like, what do they mean by that? Yeah. Why are they just throwing this big word out about team culture without actually explaining it? Yep. So I'll try to do the latter. Of We looked up one day after we probably hired the third or fourth employee and realized, oh my gosh, there is like a lot in common between these employees and they were not in common with where we found them. They weren't in common in their age range. They, they, they did not have their like area of expertise in common, but we felt like everyone on our team is very low ego. They're a team player, they're hungry and they're easygoing. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll say my wife, Maddie and I met at a summer camp where we were camp counselors. Okay, um, that's really cute. And, oh, thank you. <laughs> and as you can imagine, imagine a stereotypical camp counselor. I can. And we joke now like, yes. Did that's you do like enameling and you did tennis? <laughs> uh, you're not far off. Did she do the um, silversmith or like, she definitely did she, art. She did some crafts. She also did a little bit of sailing. Okay. I was doing mostly wakeboarding right. and baseball. Okay, that yes. totally um, tracks. Perfect. So yeah. this is a silly one, but I kind of feel like, yes, you want as diverse a team as possible in terms of strengths, gifts, ethnicity, ages, backgrounds, industry experience. But on the piece of culture, you actually want everyone to have a similar vision right. of like, Yes, of course, we want people to be able to disagree with each other and uh, be able to fight over some of the nuanced details such that we can have the best result. But we felt like, first and foremost, these need to be agreeable people because otherwise the rest of it falls yes. off as you grow. Yep. So I would say first, that was our first point of advice, find people you like hanging mm -hmm. out with. This is a very long yep. game. You spend many hundred hour weeks doing it. The least you could do is give yourself people you enjoy. Yep. Um, and then the final one was... I constantly was realizing like, oh, I have no CPG experience. Now I have three years of CPG experience. Right. It feels like longer, but that's the truth. Yep. So going out and hiring someone with 10 years is the smartest thing to yep. do. Like, I, yes, I want people that are uh, in sales and in, ops. Like, what, you know, where did you go to find that 10 year person? Yeah. For, so for a little of both, I guess for sales, he's probably right around 10 years, our director of sales. Mm -hmm. um, and he's got a lot of experience promo planning mm -hmm. for I'll give another example of, you know, e-commerce. Like, mm -hmm. Hey, before COVID, there were only so many people that had sold food and beverages on the right. internet. Like the, it was, it yeah, was kind of laughable seeing some job yep. listings. Where could they have worked? Mm -hmm. um, and luckily we were able to found one that, yeah, he, he's worked in food and beverage companies for a long time. Um, we needed a graphic designer. We didn't need her to be industry specific. We needed to just really like her work ethic and style. Right. She'd never worked in CPG before. So I think there are certain areas where, yes, you want them to have a lot of experience because you want to be able to 
quickly accelerate based on their past experience. Right. But there are others where bringing in new ideas has been a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we talk about it in ecology a lot, this thing called the edge effect, um, where basically you have two totally different ecosystems. And let's say each ecosystem by itself has like 10 million organisms, where those two bump up against each other has like 50 million organisms. So like the right. sum is so much more or whatever, you know, that what's that expression that da, 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 is more than the sum. Of the oh, the, the sum is greater than its parts. Yeah. And yes. I mean, that's, that's, that's just a well-known sort of ecological phenomenon. So it totally makes sense that, you know, in certain, it, it does make sense at a certain time in your, the life cycle of the company to hire a salesperson who understands how to do a pricing slope and understands how, you right. know, how the, the reset calendars work and the promo plans work, because that is a big part of what sales is, especially totally. when they probably bring us in as the founders for, you know, at least the really big accounts, but a lot of, you know, a lot of the sort of like vision storytelling, here's what the product is parts of the pitch. Right. Um, and right. then you butt that up against someone who is bringing something new and fresh, you know, who hasn't worked in this industry. And then you create this amazing, you know, 50 million organism space in between. We hope so. We hope so. Yeah. Um, so speaking of the e-com piece of the business, um, one thing that you guys are doing that is clearly very different and very cool is sort of this crowdsourcing you know, you have, I believe, an email list. People get a new flavor pretty frequently. Um, if it hits and people love it, it might make its way to retail. Can you tell me a little bit about that? A, on the back end, just logistically, the challenges for us, it takes at least nine months to get a new SKU out, and we probably can't do it if it doesn't have a big distribution. Um, right. which, you know, again, is, is not unique to us, but I know other brands can come out with partnerships and with limited time offers and stuff like that pretty, pretty easily. But then tell me about, you know, and I can understand how it's, it's, it would be to email signups and bringing people into the brand, but it's also, I think, leading to other things. So I'd like you just to tell me a little bit about it. Totally. So I, I would say there's a big question right now of, of what is a direct-to-consumer dollar worth and what is a retail dollar worth and are they worth the same thing? And I've asked that question to probably 30 investors and I've gotten probably 15 different answers um, where some people think an e-com dollar is worth $2. Some people think it's worth 20 cents. Right. Um, for us, we know that yes, e-com will always be the minority of our business in terms of revenue, but it is an amazing marketing channel. Mm -hmm. And we think of it kind of in three ways. One, it is where we can do R&D to our most hardcore fans, the folks that are shipping heavy 10-pound boxes of water across the country to their house. That means they are the most hardcore sparkling or Ourobora fan that you could have. So first, R&D to that group. Second, marketing to the world in general. Any sort of D2C ad uh, or piece of marketing or any sort of collateral on our website, that just serves to help the overall business. And we can't right now attribute that sale to a retail dollar. Right. But I know people are seeing our ads and then buying us in Sprouts. Yep. I just can't track yep. them. And you might not be able to Finally, and you're okay with that. And I'm okay yep. with that. And whoever invents the way of tracking that will be an instant trillionaire. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the third and final one is probably the one I'm most passionate about. So R&D marketing is 
loyalty. Yeah. Like this group of people, we want them to feel warm and fuzzy. Yep. So when we finally get to a store in their town, I don't want to lose that direct relationship with them. Yeah. I want them to buy cactus, rose, and lavender cucumber from Sprouts in their town, but I want them to come buy the limited time offerings from mm -hmm. us. One, so I can do the first two things, have R&D and see how the marketing works. But third and finally, I want them to know, hey, we're an innovative sparkling water brand. We're not going to stop innovating. We want you to keep trying new stuff such that we know what's great, what should go to retail, what's a seasonal just for Christmas time, yeah. and what's a flavor that you never want to see again? Yeah. And I care the most about those 5,000 people. And the truth is I almost don't care about anyone yeah. else. I care about those 5,000 people more than anyone. Yeah. I mean, it makes total sense. I mean, Kevin from Emmy was, you know, he, he has a 8,000 person, I think maybe it's now 12,000 person, you know, closed Facebook group. Um, you that. need a password. I mean, by the way, I'm having a guest on in a couple of weeks and he started this bean company, um, called Rancho Gordo in like 2005. And they have a closed Facebook bean obsessed company, uh, not company, the community it. too. So this is definitely where it's at. And I think what I love about it is like, it's like this adjustment of like D to C being the business to D to C being a part of the business and figuring out what part of the business it is and what makes the most sense depending on everything, your product, your brand, you know, how you talk to consumers, all of that. But I love that. I took notes on those three things. Okay. Love that. Um, so we're a little over. Is there anything last licks you want to get in there before we call it a day? No, this was great. Yeah. Thank you for having no, me. No, it was really, really fun having you. Um, I'm really psyched. I'm psyched we met. I'm psyched you were on the show. I'm psyched for Ourobora. And um, I'm happy that you guys have been able to do this as a couple and that, you know, you're it, you're still together. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, far, sure. so, good. Is, so is... far, so good. So far, so good. All right. Well, again, Paul, thank you for coming on the show. Armin, thank you for engineering the show and letting me go over. And all of you listeners, I've been hearing, we're up to like, it's like over a thousand downloads a week. It's really cool. Um, I don't know. I'm thrilled it's helping. This is hard and we all need help. So I'm happy to be helpful. And I've gotten so much out of it. So I'm really grateful to everyone. So thank you. And I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. <laughs>